Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you're doing well, as always. But I'm especially glad you're here today, because this is a very special episode. Today, I have an interview for you with my new friend, Zach Stein. Zach is one of my biggest intellectual influences right now. I am reading his book, Education in a Time Between Worlds, and it is absolutely fantastic. I can't recommend it more. There's a link to his book and his most recent article in the show notes below. But I'll tell you quickly why Zach is someone who I look up to and why I think his work is so important. I'll just give you a quick blurb on that before we dive in here. And the first thing I'll say is that anyone who stands up for education reform that doesn't just treat children like tax livestock is a person who is doing God's work. Standing up for the experiences of children and and adolescents so that they can grow up to be fully actualized people as opposed to being just mere agents in the marketplace is the direction that we need to go. And how we treat children is something that is so vastly underspoken in our current political ideologies. The fact that we drug and ridicule children at the rate that we do in public schools is abhorrent to me. And it's abhorrent to Zach and Zach has gone through great lengths to take a stand for the people who can't take a stand for themselves, and those are underaged minors who are stuck in a gulag-style education system that breeds them to be soldiers for the economy. If you guys like this podcast, if you think these are the kind of conversations we need to be having right now, please share this podcast, leave a review that really helps and also consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I so appreciate the people who are donating. Without further ado, here is a very in-depth conversation with Dr. Zach Stein. I'm going to drop you into it just as we kind of start exchanging some pleasantries and get to know each other. Do take note that This is a conversation that is our first meeting, which is a very interesting way to do interviews. I like it. So thanks so much, Zach, for coming on and for being such a fucking stand for the experiences of children and adolescents and for defending and helping me understand my own experience in going through the public education school uh, system here in America. So ready? Here we go.
uh, you have my, my rapt attention lately, my man. Um, I really appreciate your writing and this book, I bought it in paperback here. It doesn't have a signature in the front of it, which is a problem, but, um, I'll remedy that at some point, but yeah. How are you? I'm a bit nervous this morning. You shouldn't be nervous. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm moving a house on the 28th. So I'm just like in the middle of logistics mm. for moving. So mm. but <clears throat> aside from that, I'm doing all right. I did some dishes and swept the house and meditated. And that's about all I've done today. Did a little bit of reading. Mm. There's, um, I, I've been, I've been with you at your, um, your talks on the Stoa. Right. Peter is becoming a friend and a brother in arms to me. He has just like, you know, Bartlett said the other day that Peter has fire coming out of his fingertips right now. <laughs> and that's totally true. Peter is just on a tear and I just like, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to encourage Peter to keep going on that. Um, but there's sometimes you talk about things that are really heavy and scary and you chuckle and it kind of reminds me of this concept of levity on the far side of tragedy. And so, um, today, if we, if we do anything, I think having fun and trying to find some kind of levity on the far side of tragedy is kind of a, uh, a goal for our conversation today. I feel like, I feel like there's, um, I I don't know if you watched any of the videos I sent you, but I'm a professional action sports athlete. I'm a highliner and a paraglider. I I watched one of them. Yeah. I watched one of them. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Thank you. And I don't know. I feel like that's one of my like gifts to the world is like bringing people some kind of fun that they actually were totally unaware that they could even have in their own lives, whether that's like, convincing them to jump off of some kind of cliff tied to a rope or walking across the high line or anything like that. And I, I don't know, I even sense in myself as I just like have a concept of you that I, that we're kind of like, so hopeful. We're like, okay, Zach, please help us fix ourselves or fix us for us. And I feel the same thing with Daniel and with Jordan and with Jordan Peterson and, there's like a strange relationship we have to our intellectual mentors right now. And I had that to Ken Wilber as a young man. Uh, It was Ken's work that completely changed my life. And I became obsessed with reading everything he wrote and getting into everything that I could in terms of audio and then reading his bibliography. And then literally in the sense of reading every book that was in the bibliography of his books (laughs) so it was just that deep uh thing and there's a certain kind of personality that can take on someone as the status of teacher or elder right and like so i was blessed with just that disposition to be looking for someone to look up to like to be looking to someone to learn from and then to have enough discipline to to do it uh and then now the, the problem there is that when that happens, usually you end up uh, eventually killing the father, which is to say <clears throat> you come to idolize this person 
and you love them and you learn everything about them. And then your identity is so fused with theirs that you feel the need to push away. And this is part of the development as you do this with your parents. And, uh, but the risk there is that as part of that pushing away, you end up villainizing, turning against, over critiquing, over correcting for your prior infatuation. And so that happens with the great figures as well. We see it with Wilbur, see it with Peterson and others where it's like, it's the emotional splitting, like the either the most amazing person ever <clears throat> or some kind of villain charlatan guru, right? And like, so I've seen people do that with Ken Wilbur where it was like, hey man, for years you loved this guy. <laughs> like your whole identity is based on <clears throat> reading his books and, and now all of a sudden you're just hating on him. Like he never gave you anything. Mm. And uh, so, and I think it's that polarity that makes some people pull out of the game entirely. Mm-hmm. They pull out of the game and they don't admire anyone and they don't really hate anyone. They're just mm-hmm. kind of indifferent mm-hmm. to the serious play of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're in the serious play of ideas, <clears throat> then there's often this, uh, these dynamics of getting pulled into people's teacherly authority and then finding ways to put it in context and to pull together various different perspectives to become meta-perspectival. Mm-hmm. Um, to transcend and include that teacher you had mm-hmm. instead of transcending and negating them, which is what the tendency is. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so kudos to you guys who are out there working hard to find uh, teachers and working hard to learn um, yeah. uh, as opposed to just being entertained. Because mm-hmm. some people just look to it as entertainment. Yeah. Which is not useful. Yeah, I feel like what you say there, it, I, I feel like it started with my own father, like literally, like I kind of, my intellectual evolution kind of took me through liberalism and, and political action into peaceful parenting. I actually found Stefan Molyneux probably eight years ago Beautiful. online doing a oh. presentation about peaceful parenting totally. and there was a part of me and as i say this it is reminiscent of how i've interacted with your work is there's a part of molyneux's work that i felt defended by that i felt like he was standing up for the injustices that i couldn't have stood up for myself as a child Mm -hmm. and that's a very similar experience to what i'm having as i read the essay on uh ADHD medication because I was Medicaid. I like, I'm a professional athlete in nearly four sports and I am superhuman in my ability to jump from idea to idea to subject to subject to activity to activity. And somehow as a child, that was like, that was like some kind of thing that needed medicated. And it's just like, (laughs) right. It, right. It's hard. Like I, I've fucking cried reading your book a couple of times, just like at the, at mm-hmm. just kind of like uncovering more layers of my own experience. Right. And I'm still like, I'm still at 31 years old. I'm trying to kind of like uncondition myself. Right. Like my, like I was literally 
one thing that was pounded into me as a child was that my attention span was short, that I had a short attention span, that I couldn't pay attention. And I feel like I just like swallowed that. But then like, as I start to uncover it, I'm like, wait a second. No, like I find the things I like to do and I literally become one of the best in the world at it, like three times over. Right. I've gone to the top of games. Like I've gone to the top of a couple of different sports and I just like, it's a full fledged addiction. I have such a huge attention span, not a short attention span. Totally. No, I saw that video of you walking across that slack line or whatever it's called. Yeah. I don't know how long you were walking, but that's a tremendous act of concentration. Yeah. Yeah. It's the whole body. It's the whole body that's concentrating. And that's what's so messed up about ADHD diagnosis. And frankly, a lot, pretty much almost all psychiatric diagnosis categories applied to children need to, are just hugely problematic, um, especially when they come with biomedical interventions, which is to say psychotropic drugs like ADHD meds. Yeah. That, that shit is pretty gnarly. Yeah. And, man. and uh, honestly, like I'm a psychonaut and Adderall is still the hardest drug I've ever taken. Like by a long shot. What's a schedule like, two substance? It's a like schedule. It two is substance. fucking crazy, man. Yeah. It is crazy. And even like, I, I mean, I was like 13 and like, we like abused it recreationally. Yeah. I know it surpasses marijuana and alcohol as the most abused drugs on college campus. I mean, it's a schedule two drug and it's, it's basically amphetamine. It's basically speed. So it's basically like Coke or speed. And what's interesting about the compounds like Adderall uh, is that you can tie them directly into the lineage of the pharmaceutical companies that go back to the very first military uses of psychotropic drugs. Mm -hmm. And so there's a couple of books on like the history of amphetamine in particular as a military drug, which is to say a drug that accompanies the most intense aspects of our industrial society to get people to do what has to be done to make these machines run. And the Blitzkrieg, right? The Nazis, the Blitzkrieg, that was run on basically Adderall. <clears throat> it was run on speed. It was run on the first synthesized pharmaceuticals, uh, petrochemical pharmaceuticals. And so, and then the Americans copied that uh, for a very long time. We were also basically injecting speed into our soldiers. And now if you look at the Middle East and the Syrian civil war, part of there you have a kind of a biomedical thing that popped up with these people synthesizing a much stronger form of speed. That's almost like crystal meth. And so you've got the, a lot of ISIS and the Syrian civil war running on basically amphetamine as well. And, uh, but we just give it to the kids to help them deal with school. It's like, wow, what? that is such a terrifying, <laughs> like, how is this? How, how did this happen? I'm not saying like that Adderall is what's being synthesized in Syria, nor is it the first compounds of pure amphetamine that ran the Nazis, but it is the same chemical. Um, and for the same function, which is to say you put individuals in very difficult circumstances to do regimented work against often their instinctual drives. Um, and what's interesting is, and it was in the original studies that the American armies did around the use of amphetamine for troops is echoed again in the ADHD research, which is that basically it helps with morale. 
So you'll stay on task, right? And you'll do the work. And like in the army, they enjoyed doing it a little bit better when they were high on amphetamines, but the quality of the work didn't significantly improve. Mm. Um, and this is shown also in ADHD research. Last time I checked, it was pretty universal that, you know, a lot of the diagnostic stuff, the behavioral symptoms went down, but the kids didn't become smarter or better able at the schoolwork. No. They just didn't misbehave and they were able to basically put on the yeah. pretense, of, pretense of doing schoolwork. And so, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, and complicated kind of tragic situation where we've been basically externalizing, you know, like commodity supply chains of externalities, like, you know, like pollution and waste. And <clears throat> so the way we create uh, people, the educational systems, there are externalities and we've been putting the externalities into the nervous systems of kids for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And we basically blame the kid's brain mm-hmm. for issues that are actually problematic with school culture. Um, and school infrastructure and basically many layers of problems with the education system. But instead of noting those and handling those, mostly the knee-jerk reaction is to blame the child and specifically the central nervous system of the child. Um, and, which is um, crazy. Which is crazy. It's like, why not blame the kids' parents and the way that they parented or blame the social media or the screens or it's like all these other things and blaming is probably not the word that people would want to use because the whole point is that it's medical the whole Mm -hmm. point is that it's a disease category that's being applied so it's an objective diagnostic it's not moral or blaming but but it is moral and blaming well it is and there's word there's work down the uk where they were doing long qualitative interviews with kids with ADHD who'd been on meds for a very long time and basically asking them about themselves and their experience of working with the drug and being in school on the drug. And it became, uh, as you were just mentioned, it became a part of their identity that the diagnostic category was a part of their identity to the extent that they understood themselves to have a broken brain. Right. Like, and that almost like they were, diabetic or, yeah. you know, and needed it because yeah. there was some underlying organic dysfunction. Yeah. And that's nuts. Like that's not, how it is nuts. And it seems work. to me, yeah. it seems to me that that is just a massively societal externality of like, we're so reductively looking at performance in school and we're completely destroying self-identity we're destroying self-actualization and development and maturity my own experience on the drug was essentially that it flipped me 180 degrees from wanting to be outside and wanting freedom to wanting structure and like classwork was actually like bearable and uh, somehow engaging, but I didn't like physically, I didn't want to move my body at all. I wanted to be very sedentary. I was absolutely irritable. Like com- my emotions were so fucked up. Like I, in my best friend, I stabbed my best friend in the arm with a plastic fork at lunch because he tried to like take some of my food or something just like these unheard of, like it completely and totally transformed me into another person. My younger brother was also drugged. He became just a zombie. He was just like, he was apathetic to no end. And it's like, yeah, 
it's so intense and it's so fucked up, man. And it's like what you're laying out here in the book, education and time between worlds is more than just the call out culture of like what's wrong about it, but more of a underlying framework that we've built up that is leading our decisions to make these kinds of choices time and time again. The choices that would justify biomedical intervention as a, as a improvement for homework. So yeah, I would just say, thank you, man. Thank you. I feel like you've stood up for me and like so many other people. And, uh, one of the first exercises in philosophy that I ever undertook was like, how do we treat children? So this is really like foundational for me, for my entire intellectual evolution. This is like really at the core of understanding how we treat people. Like, how do you treat a child? I have for a long time banged on the drum that parenting is the soil from which society grows. And if you want to blame anything, you have to blame parenting. And I think that (laughs) your book takes that one step further and say that parenting is like a core educational process. And there's another ring outside of that, that is really contributing to, to these things. So I'll just tell you how I kind of interacted with your work in the beginning. And I would love to hear from you kind of your background, like how you became an educational philosopher, which is something I didn't know existed three weeks ago. Um, Like how you even got involved in that. Obviously your intellectual influence of Ken Wilber is we have that in common. And yesterday I interviewed Terry Patton, who is like just mind blowing boggling in his like just like his aura and his like his I felt so empowered and loved by our conversation it was just absolutely amazing um but I found your work in Jordan Hall made a post where the first line of it was I think one of the best possible outcomes of this pandemic is that the schools never open again and then he kind of he linked to your book he kind of wrote out some of the reasons why And that was just like, that was a sharp hook in my mouth. Like the idea of let's not open the schools back up was you had my attention right in that moment. Um, And then I think the first quote, I I looked at a, a podcast that you had done and the quote that you said was, it doesn't take a complex educator to see the connection between armies and schools. And you were referring to the, to an overall peace movement, which is my other biggest shtick in philosophy is the non-aggression principle. So parenting and non-aggression, those are kind of my foundational lenses. And I feel like uh, your work is absolutely just pivotal mm-hmm. for the, mm-hmm. for my particular shtick. So I would love to hear just a little bit of your own background as to how you became interested in education and sure. have come this far in doing it. Totally. Um, I mean, I'm dyslexic, so I was also in a situation in schools of having a diagnostic category applied to me and then unusual attention paid. And uh, my mom, as I had been trained as a special educator, and so she kind of saved me with kind of like giving me a different way to understand the disability and to take it as a difference. Um, but nevertheless, I didn't do well in school. I didn't do 
terrible, but I didn't embrace school at all. <laughs> and uh, was a musician and played music way more than I studied. Went to a weird liberal arts college called Hampshire College, which is probably soon going to be defunct because of all this. And uh, <clears throat> didn't even intend to graduate, basically intended to start a band. That was like my what I was doing. I didn't. And so Megan, who's my wife, I met her then, uh, first year of college. And then I dropped out of college. We went to California to try to start a band. Failed at that. <clears throat> but in the process of that kind of big mistake, and it wasn't a big mistake, it was a big learning experience. I discovered philosophy, specifically Ken Wilbur. And I'd always been a, a bit of a reader, uh, despite the dyslexia. But finding Ken's work and this kind of whole universe of psychology, developmental psychology in particular, um, kind of gave me a sense of a connection to a broader world of ideas, similar to the sense I'd had of connection to this world of musicians, like the way I admired Miles Davis and Coltrane and um, tried to aspire to play like them. <clears throat> I came to see people who were thinking about the world in such complex and beautiful ways and aspiring to be a new kind of human, aspiring to live lives of virtue and awakening and things of that nature. And so I kind of had one of those, you know, maturational crises and turned toward philosophy very seriously as a way of life and uh, re-enrolled in school. And because of the focus with developmental psychology um, and my pre-existing experiences with education, uh, it all kind of started to come together, uh, thinking about education very, very deeply. Um, and so let's see, founded a nonprofit with a woman named Theo Dawson, who was a developmental psychologist. This is when I was still an undergraduate at Hampshire. And she was a neo-Piagetian developmental psychologist who had done unprecedented work in psychometrically validating developmental assessment systems. <clears throat> and so this was basically a fancy way of saying those levels that Ken had been talking about, she had a way to like measure them really well. <laughs> and this people had been trying to measure them since Piaget, Kohlberg in particular and others, but she found a way to really measure them and this meant that we could change the nature of testing in schools fundamentally. And so that was my first real pivot towards looking at schools and school systems was in the context of having a revolutionary educational assessment technology and worked for about 10 years. <clears throat> um, that included the, my journey into graduate school. Uh, worked for about 10 years actively trying to think about how to orchestrate large-scale standardized testing reform based on a kind of a new science of learning, uh, which was thoroughgoing developmental uh, science. So instead of a static, you're smarter, you're not smart, <laughs> you get this evolving picture of the self with these feedback loops built into the uh -huh. assessment infrastructure. Um, in my book, this is part of the back end of the educational uh, hub network is the electrical assessments with this universal content delivery system that allows for like the mass customization of developmentally appropriate curricula. So that was kind of like brought me to graduate school where I was basically then. <clears throat> That's like the difference. Sorry to stop you there. That's like the difference in your book. You make the analogy of our metaphors 
changing from that of our brain as a computer to that right. of our brain as an ecosystem. Right, exactly. Yeah, and the, the way we measure something is like almost unconsciously predisposes us to holding that thing with a certain, in a certain way. So if you think of psychological assessment in a static way, where you're applying one number like an IQ, or you're applying one type like in a typology, like your extroverted, you know, Myers-Briggs or whatever, then you get a static notion of the mind and a sense of like an essential trait, um, almost like the hardware set and doesn't change. Um, but if you take a developmental view, like a la Piaget, Wilbur, uh, Dawson, then you get this evolving sense of self and an incremental view and an achievement-oriented or ideal-driven view of self, which is to say it's not who you think you are based on what you were given genetically or something. It's more about who you can aspire to be as an aspect of your skill development and reflective learning. So it's these two very different frames. And if we can't figure out how to have forms of assessment on that second frame, right? Which is to say that if we can't figure out how to run a very complex school system based on that second frame, where like, if we want to do that, we need some assessments that at least gear into our psyches in that manner. And that would allow us to drop these ones, which we know are inadequate and we've known for a long time that the SAT is not reasonable way to think about a person. The IQ test is an oversimplification. We already mentioned the diagnostic categories from the DSM, that all these things are static, non-developmental, essentialistic, and at the end of the day, biologically reductive, whereas the developmental views are epigenetic, emergent, non-reductive, and move towards uh, forms of self-understanding that... Uh, allow for growth, change, transformation as an aspect of the self. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think so. so much of what I am experiencing lately is like in every, you know, I think that people have known that like big pharma and Western medicine is reductive. And if your bone is sticking out of your leg, it's a really like important tool to have. But like, if you kind of have some tummy issues. You don't really like want to go to a doctor because they're just kind of, kind of poke you and probe you and they won't ask you any questions about your environment or, and so holistic medicine is a uh, important tool to have in that toolkit. And I see in a similar sense that you have seen, and so many of us are seeing that our school system is reductive and myopic and a better way to even think about it is an integral meta, meta theorizing way that we can actually include things like an IQ test, but those are just a small sliver of how we go about um, understanding or, or learning or measuring or anything is. And, and I guess that my, my question that came up as you were talking about the IQ test is I, I've been very intrigued by IQ in the past mm. um is that something that we throw away is that something that goes away or is that a true but partial part of a integral and meta theorizing educational system <laughs> that's a complex question of course uh i think mostly the iq is uh a stand-in for 
what better measures can already reveal about the growth of intelligence along a dimension of hierarchical complexity. So I'm not a fan of IQ. I think mostly we can drop IQ along with a whole bunch of other old psychological constructs, which have their time has passed due. It's interesting that psychology as a field is not as coherent as other fields, so it doesn't make cumulative scientific progress in the same way that other fields do, where they're really easy to like, hey, this was a measure that was developed in like 1900 something, like, hmm, like maybe let's not use this measure anymore, right? But it's been really yeah. extensively studied, right? Like IQ is one of the more studied things in psychology. Correct, Correct. yeah, I mean, for 100 years or so, um, it's used, uh, as a, as a, as an, as a measure, um, and it stands in for some kind of construct, but, uh, the more interesting way I think that we're going to start to deal with IQ is to look at the history of it, um, and look at the forms of psychological theorizing that have always accompanied the mm. use of IQ and then see if the people who are using IQ today do so in any way conscious of that history uh, or if they're just using it because it's basically opportunistic research. But, but, but what I mean by that is that everyone knows the IQ and everyone likes the IQ. And so it's a stand in for something. Uh -huh. right? That they don't actually take the IQ theorizing seriously uh -huh. in its historical development. Because if you look at the IQ theorizing seriously in its historical development, then you start scratching your head about what is this construct actually, right? That the construct's actually an epiphenomenon from the measurement instrument, which mm -hmm. Binet developed, right? And that was repurposed by the American army. And it was never intended to be a general theory of intelligence ever, at all. It was meant to be a reliable differentiator of certain capacities for the organization of people in bureaucratic situations. It was made to place soldiers into where they best fit in an army, right? Well, first it was made to basically be able to identify those students in the French public schools that needed special education. Oh, wow. Then it was repurposed by Americans as a general all-purpose mechanism for stratifying personnel within the United States Army, and then the same idea in the schools, right? Binet specifically said, this is not a theory of intelligence. This is basically like a thermometer or something. It's not a theoretically robust instrument. It's just useful for like sorting things. Mm. The Americans were like, well, that's interesting. Ah, let's use it differently. Let's, let's think that there's actually this thing in the brain that is your general intelligence, which is genetically tied to the, what they called at the time the germplasm, which now we would call DNA, so that the intelligence you have when you're born is a result of your DNA, and you have that genetic determined intelligence in you for the rest of your life. And that's what we're measuring when we measure IQ. So that was an American invention, along with the multiple choice, mass administered standardized IQ test, which was also an American invention. The prior IQ tests and the best IQ tests today, if you're going to have to take one, are administered with a person there who speaks to you and does complex stuff. And it's a more complex thing, but you couldn't get a in World War One, when you're getting ready to go to war, couldn't sit down with every potential soldier. She had to mass administer a giant gymnasium multiple choice test that was invented, multiple choice test at that time. And uh, 
so yeah, so you end up with this strange kind of marriage between this like bureaucratic tool and this kind of like uh, quite simplistic and reductionistic psychology. And then this becomes the basis for thinking about intelligence for an extremely long time, unfortunately. Um, and so when you look at the work of like Piaget and people in the traditions of cognitive science and you start to get more complex notions of how intelligence works within organisms, how intelligence uh, functions both in cognitive and emotional aspects of self-regulation and those kinds of things. It's like the IQ is still there because it's just this useful instrument, but it's out of sync with the richer theorizing that was taking place. Um, and this is the same Piaget that Jordan Peterson tends to have a shtick with because he, uh, and I've never really looked into Piaget's work, but Peterson talks about him as he was a postmodernist who made claims that all hierarchies were power hierarchies and not hierarchies of competence. <laughs> In, incorrect. <laughs> Piaget, uh, uh, was a developmental psychologist, was not a postmodernist. Um, so I don't know who you're thinking of, maybe like uh, Foucault or somebody uh, like that. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, um, Piaget was the founder of developmental psychology. Well, okay. that was actually James Mark Baldwin, who was just a little bit older than Piaget, an American fellow. But Piaget is the one we think of as the founder of developmental psychology. So he definitely believed in hierarchies that were natural and actually okay. built into the nature of the developing child as a hierarchical order of levels of development. And uh, so Wilbur's levels come from that. Uh -huh. Most of the systems of levels can be tied back to the original Piagetian insights into the nature of the developing child. So Piaget is one of the best examples of actually talking about a hierarchy mm -hmm. in a coherent way and in a way that is resonant with what we see in the hierarchical development of a natural world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you seem to be kind of a historian on the philosophies that we're talking about. And I think I could probably become a little bit more robust in understanding the frameworks that we're... Yeah, you got to read, you got to read. And, and that's the thing about the IQ. And this is the thing about anytime I use a construct, I always look at the history of this construct, right? Because you have to know what the hell you're getting into and what you're actually using. And, and so similarly, like with Piaget, I didn't just look at the textbook Piaget or even one or two books. I could try to read as much as you can and then read books about them and then read biographies of them are huge. Okay. Let's, I, I, now that I have you, I would just love to tangent here because uh, we could talk about your book all day, but I, I also want to just kind of, poke at your sense-making and hear your thoughts on certain things, especially around IQ. And Sam Harris, Molyneux, and what is the guy who wrote the, the book about IQ? Uh, there's basically, they talk about these correlations between IQ and outcome, whether they are based on race, gender, um, country of origin, and particularly the ones that I'm interested in are violence like the the correlation between your iq and your likelihood to spank or hit or abuse your child or your wife um yeah talk to me about your thoughts on just kind of I, i'm i'm getting a idea 
an intuition as to the IQ being kind of based on foundational errors. And if we're using that to try to kind of understand things without. Well, uh, it's, I mean, the way I think about it is that like for a long time and still, it still happens, maybe most of psychology uh, creates what I call these mongrel concepts, right? So, and this comes from a generally psychology being irrealist. Most of science has been irrealist. And this is a complex conversation about ontology. So, but the idea is that, uh, is it that the mind actually has a way that it works and is organized? Or is it that we can bring any framework we want to that's useful to understand the mind and that's good enough? Mm. Right. So two different ways of thinking. Realism says, no, you can carve nature at the joints, that there's a way that things are and we need to move towards commonly understanding those core structures of the reality that we're looking at. Nominalism or irrealism says, nah, we're not going to know the reality, right? <laughs> we can bring any framework we want to and they more or less work or they more or less don't and they're just useful or they're not useful, right? And so I'm a, I'm a realist and I believe that the, develop, the developmental levels triangulated by Piaget and company, which have been refined over like 80 years through the Neo-Piagetian and then psychometrically validated by people like Dawson, that's real in a way that IQ is not. IQ is a mongrel concept, mm. which is useful in correlational studies and serves as a stand-in for a bunch of actual stuff that's co-occurring in the reality of the mind when you take an IQ test. Mm. Because at the end of the day, that's what you're talking about when you're talking about IQ. You're talking about a number derived from a test. And then a bunch of people taking those tests, and then you've got your correlational statistical study, right? Now, some people talk about IQ speculatively, like almost like it's a personality type. And you look at a person and you project they've got a 120 IQ or they've got a 90 IQ or something like that. But that's mostly bullshit, right? When you're looking at a scientific study, you're looking at someone sitting down, taking an IQ test, right? What is it that determines their performance on the IQ test? Is it IQ? I don't think IQ actually exists. IQ is a mongrel concept covering a whole bunch of things. So it's, it's actually things like working memory, right? The ability to attend, right? The ability to have facility with the grammar that's used on the page, right? Being properly in a state of nutrition when you're taking the tests, right? Eyesight that works, right? So there's a bunch of things that actually allow for the performance of the IQ test being taken. And then, so that's one piece of it. What are we actually looking at here? We're looking at a, what is the nature of the test performance? What determines test performance? So if you look at your situation where people who do well on IQ tests tend not to be violent with their spouses, people who do poorly on IQ tests tend to be more violent, but um, I would sense that the overwhelming thing is that low IQ people are not like violent. <laughs> We're just looking at, again, correlations. Um, so then you have to step back and say, okay, this isn't necessarily about whether that person's smart or not. This is important, right? People in low socioeconomic statuses can be very smart by the measures of Piagetian stage development, which is to say like the guy could be having very complex social interactions, doing multiple perspective taking, 
um, taking care of several different things in the neighborhood, working a job, doing a bunch of stuff, which many middle-class people would struggle to do because of the overwhelming emotional complexity of being impoverished and doing all that stuff. And right. But sit them down, have them taking IQ tests and you give them 80 bucks to take an IQ test or something like that. Right. And I, he may not do well in an IQ test for many, many, many reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that the question of the essentialistic reduction of test performance to IQ, right? And then the essentialistic reduction of the rest of the behavior in one's life to IQ, that all to me seems unfounded. So it's kind of like when you're looking at, when you're looking at correlational studies, there's just this question of like, what are we actually looking at and what is the measure actually worth? And I bet I could find a lot of other stuff that correlates with those differential behavior patterns of violence, totally. right? Totally. That would make IQ basically redundant as yeah. a measure. Um, uh, and so again, but this is, I think at the end of the day, also a question about what is psychology? What are we doing when we do psychology? And what is the psychology that's worth doing? And in general, large- a big question. Well, this is what I'm saying. In general, large correlational studies, right, based on very limited number of sometimes poorly validated instruments, right, is that useful psychology? Like I don't, I'm asking, right, as compared to the psychology that's done uh, by people working on best practices in psychotherapy, right? Where they're not looking at huge correlational studies. They're looking at rich, uh, N of one case study, how you deal with someone who has this type of trauma, right? Yeah. I'm starting to, yeah, there's this tendency to move towards scale, bigger, bigger quantitative work in psychology and they need instruments and all these things. Um, but what's interesting about the work I did in graduate school with Kurt Fisher and part of this neo-piagetian paradigm is that it's a dynamical systems way of thinking. And in dynamical systems modeling, you can actually use what are called exemplary organisms. You can look at one thing really carefully <laughs> and begin to extract from it the general principles of how the system works because it's a different way of, it's a science of the individual uh-huh. as opposed to a science of correlation. Yeah. So it's a science of the patterns that characterize uniqueness as opposed to looking at the underlying things that kind of occlude uniqueness, which is what the correlational studies give you. Because yeah. the correlational studies are never true at the level of the individual. No. Right? Um, whereas the dynamic systems modeling approach, uh, it's just a different way of doing science. And so the my, my deepest kind of response to those IQ tests is just like, I'm not actually interested in that kind of psychology. It doesn't help me do anything like maybe you want to inform public policy or something like what are you trying to do if you're talking to someone who actually beats their wife like does it help you to know their iq does it help you have been a psychologist quote unquote who did a bunch of correlational studies on iq and now you can advise public policy but you couldn't actually sit with this dude who beats his wife and talk to him and figure out how he works and get him to stop doing it right so it's like what is the function of psychology and the academic kind of cognitive reductionistic correlational psychologists have often pushed out the therapeutic based psychologies and specifically the psychoanalytical and depth psychological branches, which are exactly those branches that would allow you to sit with someone who does beat their wife <laughs> and know nothing about their IQ 
<laughs> and be able to deal with them as a person to resolve, frankly, what were probably emotional issues, not intellectual issues uh-huh. that lead them to do that behavior. Um, yeah. And I so see that. This, yeah. It's a paradigmatic I, thing. I see that in so many different um, realms that we are both, we are addicted to scale that like everything like even just our data sets, like you're saying, like anecdotal or one organism studies are thrown out because they're not huge amounts of data points that are aggregated. And we have this like addiction to scale that, you know, would go into the, the reason that IQ would be studied so that we could base public policy. And that's, um, that kind of just leads me back to like the holistic versus, um, reductive medical practices or nutrition or anything like that. It's like, there's gotta be some kind of integration and inclusion of both the single organism study and the bigger picture. So I I'm curious, I, your first book, um, measurement and social justice. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear like there's an underlying problem in measurement here that we're talking about because mm-hmm. we could talk about how to make the perfect IQ test, but that is probably a flawed objective to begin with. So I would just love to hear like mm-hmm. what the problem in measurement is. I think we're having a measurement problem in so many different realms of our life right now in this time between worlds. Totally. This is like one of my <clears throat> kind of weird soapboxes, <laughs> and I don't know how I ended up with this, um, <laughs> but like I became very worried about measurement like almost obsessed with measurement and it began with looking at things like IQ tests and things like how we test for learning disability and things like that. But then I saw how those were tied into other social structures. Um, and I began to see actually that measurement infrastructures are a huge part of what regulates human behavior and actually encodes the worldviews that we live by. Uh, and, so I started looking at the history of measurement, right? Looking at the ancient Babylonian measurement practices, Greek measurement practices, and of course the birth of the metric system, right? Which is the first truly planetary measurement system, which lays the groundwork for the emergence after World War II of basically a, a planet that is enclosed, almost completely enclosed by an extremely complex lattice of interrelated measurement infrastructures. Um, and psychological measurement is one of those, right? But, and so this is, and it's a part of my book, the chapter on measurement. I don't know if you've gotten there yet, but, you know, the International Standards Organization, you know, basically regulates the size of almost everything. And when you think of a commodity, right, a toaster oven, let's say, the size of your toaster oven was not really decided by the toaster oven designers, it was actually preset by the standards organizations, often in terms of the size of the containers that fit on the freights, which fit through the Panama Canal, right? So this is an instance where the size of the Panama Canal sets the size of the boat, which becomes standardized, which sets the size of the shipping container, which is now standardized. So all shipping containers are standardized, and then that sets the size of the toaster oven that can fit in the shipping container, right? So nested interrelated measurement infrastructures, um, which determine everything down to the size of the doors behind you, probably, unless the house was built like by someone um, who was uh, 
flouting the building codes. Um, so you end up getting this picture of civilization itself being kind of like a self-regulating, self-measuring entity. And as modernity kind of expanded, all the measures per- proliferated. And to the point where in post-modernity, we're facing kind of like a hyper-measured or over-measured reality. Um, yeah, but, to, but help me understand the the beauty. Like, what did the measurement do for us? Oh, there's a reason it, why it wasn't all bad, right? No, I mean that's it. It is. I mean, when you when you look at the origins of measurement in prehistoric man, what you get is a direct tie-in between the nature of measurement and the nature of basically divinity. That almost all cultures claim that the measures that like early, early cultures claim that the measures that they use were given to them by God to be used. Right. When you get up to like the Bible, you get the temple of Solomon and you get this notion of the Solomonic cubit. Now the Solomonic cubit is how big Solomon's ruler was basically like, what was the tape measure he was using? Like the cubit, like our foot. Right. And so that notion that the Solomonic cubit was somehow given to King Solomon by God himself, that influenced (laughs) in the United States of America. Like you have to understand that uh, Isaac Newton was hunting for the Solomonic cubit. Like Isaac Newton was trying to figure out how long was the Solomonic cubit because that was actually given to us by God. The founding fathers of the United States put the length of the American foot based on their hypothesis about the Solomonic cubit. And that was one of the reasons that we didn't switch to the metric system um, because we thought ours was closer to the true length of the Solomonic cubit. This was like the Masonic order in the 1860s. And uh, so this is just to say that measurement was always seen as this thing that like separates us from nature, separates us from barbarians and allows us to be basically civilized cooperating um, uh, civilizing and cooperating basically. Cause in the it's notion like a, of measurement is it's, it's like a framework for us to cooperate and, and, and communicate at some level, right? Well, it is. And it's also the basis for the notion of what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. And there's this like repeating idea of like sacred geometry. And even on the wall there behind you, there's some kind of, yeah, totally. Yeah, Metatron. And Metatron was in the Hebrew angelology was Metatron who gave the lengths. It was Metatron who actually is responsible for measuring the body of God. Wow. Uh, And so, yeah, measurement ties into this notion of what is just, right? So when you look at the figure of justice, right? What's the figure of justice? It's a woman scale. She's blind. Yeah. Right. She's a, well, it's actually a blindfolded woman who holds a sword and a scale. Yeah. And so the very notion that the righteous measure, right. The measure of man, right. Cain and Abel, the difference between them was that the one measured the offering to God, the other was unmeasured offering and the measured offering was preferred, right. That the measure is, um, the kind of sign whether the kingdom is just or not is the righteousness of the measurement practices within that kingdom. That's an ancient idea. Um, And when you look at the founding of 
ancient city-states in Greece, right? You see that all of their constitutions, the first stuff tackled was measures. How do we regulate the measures, right? <laughs> when wow. a new king, when a new king comes in, he reestablishes the foot, right? It's actually the king's foot. So there's all of these deep ties between measurement and power, measurement and knowing, measurement and justice, right? Um, and then we get into modernity, measurement becomes basically secularized through the metric system and spread out across the commodity infrastructures and made completely homogenous and almost invisible. So in the Middle Ages, it was very common to have a dispute, like in the marketplace, buying meat or wine or something, to have a dispute about a measure. That was super common. Like, and you had people walking around with like actual weights and measures yeah. on the condition of the king to like check people's scales and measures and shit. Like when was the last time you went to the grocery store or the gas station and thought twice about whether that pound or gallon was accurate? You just don't. Yeah. Right? No, so I've seen it I, in a fruit market in Morocco. I've seen well, like people who literally have like their kilo weights and yeah, that's what I'm saying. So one of the amazing things that happened with the metric system in particular, but it happened way before there. It happened, uh, frankly, with the American Civil Wars when you started to get the first large scale kind of massive nation state backed standardizations of measures across a whole bunch of industries and commodities. And what that did was that it removed a whole bunch of friction within the marketplace and made it so that people could, you could go to the grocery store, which you'll still see on the gas station. Yeah. Pump, or on the grocery store, like scale, if you get lunch meat or something, there's a little thing and it's usually signed by the state and it yeah. says this scale was checked. The Oregon Department of Rules and Measures or something. Exactly. Exactly. So, so we take for granted this backdrop of agreed upon measures and everything works that way. Just everything just moves fluidly because of the pre-standardized measurement infrastructures that we just step into by virtue of being born into the society. But when you look at IQ, now you're going to get something where you look at now genetic testing, right? Or you look at like for viral testing, right? To see if you have been infected or not. Now you're getting into these situations where these are not measures that are as easy to establish as the length of a foot or how much a gallon is, right? Or how heavy a pound is. Like you can really get that stuff down in physical measurement. We can get that down and handle that. One of the mistakes that happened with IQ was right at that time when we just standardized everything for the sake of the transcontinental railroad. And we had like people in, in California and people in New York city, like making interoperable machine parts based on standards that were nationwide. It's like, Oh my God, building the Brooklyn bridge, right? The hubris of that fed into the IQ testing movement uh, such that we thought that we, we could solve the measurement problems in the physical world we just solve the measurement problems in the psychological world, baby. Like we can build whole complex bureaucracies now based on precise psychological measurement, but they hadn't solved it, right? And they still haven't solved it. We still haven't solved it because measuring the mind's fundamentally different from measuring physical things, just like measuring disease entities is different from measuring simple physical things. Um, so measurement error steps in. Complex issues with construct validity um, the nature of the testing equipment itself is fundamentally different, right? The, is a standardized test better than an interview one-on-one -on -one for finding out someone's intelligence, right? So this notion of apparatus of measurement. So what's happening now is that we've gone very far 
into what I would call postmodern or metamodern realms of measurement. We're way beyond the physical measures. We're now measuring states of the biological uh, organism and, and psychological states and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, all the measurement that goes on in the social network backends that's psycho, psycho, psychologically profiling you to target you, target you with advertisements. This is uncharted territory in measurement, and many people are naive in their approach to it because they're so habituated by the ease of physical measurement, which has already been established. So they just walk into the world of psychometrics and they think, oh, a measure is a measure is a measure. Oh, we could totally measure resilience or we could totally measure grit as if grit exists as a psychological entity. Again, grit is a mongrel construct like IQ. So there's this need to move psychologically into a form of realism so that as we inevitably expand the lattice work of planetary measurement infrastructures to include the newospheric measurement, right? To include the measurement of the mind and the psyche, which we're going to do, which we're already doing, that we actually measure things that are there. Um, so you're alluding to the possibility that it is possible to measure this thing and our minds are not actually a hyper object that we can't quite understand. Tell, I guess, tell me your thoughts on the limits of measuring something like our minds. Oh, no. I mean, it's like, so, and again, this is the tradition that I'm in. So we built, we built great assessments. The, the electrical assessments are still up and running and Theo Dawson's like, um, really moving ahead with advancing even further the nature of the psychological measurement practice that we did there. Um, so I'm a firm believer that you can measure the mind, but measuring the mind, it's, it's like measuring a storm system, right? It's not like, you know, you throw a rock and you measure how far the rock landed from where you threw it. It's not like that. It's like measuring a hurricane, where it's like, it's a very complex dynamical system with a whole bunch, way too many to ever measure the entirety of. And it's evolving over time in relation to a bunch of environmental factors. So that means that if you're thinking about measuring the mind, you need to get some isolatable dimensions. So temperature, right? When you measure a hurricane, it's like you take this huge, vast thing, but you measure with a small number of accurate things. You temperature, right? Wind speed, humidity, things we can easily measure, but you measure a bunch of them in a bunch of different places over a couple different time cycles. And then you can project what's going to happen. It's going to develop into a stage four hurricane. It's maybe going to hit Florida, but you don't, you can't guarantee that at all. Mm -hmm. It could be a stage two and go off into the East and go out into the ocean, right? That could happen because it's a dynamical system. So that's the way I think about measuring minds is that you actually need to do multiple measures, non-invasive multiple measures over multiple timescales, over multiple dimensions, and then you can piece together a picture of an evolving dynamical system that is you or one of your skill sets, right? Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to taking one standardized test at one time. <laughs> that you're terrified of. And, and pretending that somehow is useful as an insight into yeah. you. When in fact, if you'd done many low stakes tests over many time sales, you would have seen the ebbs and flows of attention. You would have seen all of these patterns and then you can step back and get a gestalt and then you can start to make some general kind of like qualitative recommendations mm -hmm. based on numerous quantitative data points. So yeah. similar to good medical diagnostics, right? Like 
and similar constraints bureaucratically in a medical testing situation because of the expense of it, you're gonna take one test, right? And then do a bunch of stuff based on one test. When we know that there's measurement error and we know that the nature of the dynamics of biology is such that if you'd taken that test at a different time that day, it could have been different like an hour after eating or an hour before eating or whatever. So ideally you'd wanna do multiple tests on multiple time cycles to get a picture of anything. And that's just true if you're measuring anything that is living, right? If I'm measuring a rock, I can measure it once and I measured it, right? Although they say measure it twice, cut once. But if you're something's living and growing, uh, to know what it is, you need to measure it multiple times. Like if I go in my backyard now in the early spring and I measure it in a couple places and then I step back and I say, now I understand my backyard, not at all, right? Measure it once a week for 12 weeks then maybe I get it, but in Vermont, it'll be winter. And then my backyard is completely different. Yep. So there's this question of when you're looking at complex dynamical systems, measurement becomes an important way to help you understand them. But one measurement instance is never enough to understand. Uh, so, and then, yeah. Oh so. man, I feel like that's an amazing segue. I feel like we are right now, the thing that I'm so like kind of viscerally terrified about right now is authoritarianism and i feel like here where i live in central oregon in my entire county there's like in the past month there has been 60 cases of coronavirus and like three intubations or something and you know i talked to my friend who's a nurse there and she says it's pretty much business as usual you can count the people who are covid cases on a single hand and and at the same time you know they're trying the government is trying to cut off our access to the national forest and just to be outside in general. And my friend on Maui is telling me how they're using drones to patrol the beaches and national guard has set up roadblocks. And I feel like we uh, measured the pandemic three weeks ago and the implications of that have had so much momentum that they continue to kind of roll out. I mean, it's a reasonable fear. It's absolutely a reasonable fear. Um, it's one that know. leaves me feeling deeply, deeply, deeply disempowered. When I join these conversations, when I'm at the STOA, when I'm here podcasting and I'm talking about uh, gardening, I'm talking about community building, I'm talking about building better relationships, uh, knowing yourself better, all of these things are deeply empowering. I feel so like I'm fucking on fire. And then my friend calls me and tells me what Maui looks like right now with national guard setting up roadblocks and that you can't jog on the beach. And I think, right. Oh my God, it's like, that's such a disempowering. It just takes the wind out of my sails. I hear you. I mean, a few things to say. And one is that there is a pandemic, not in your town. <laughs> so you're actually lucky to be where you are. Um, you know, so that's worth saying, which is that in Italy, in Italian hospitals, in some places in New York, in certain hospitals in certain places in the country, and for many of the people who've lost people already, and the people who lose people, right? And uh, so there has been a lot of suffering and a lot of fear. And I agree. So the question of like, you know, when you know, the, what am I trying to say? 
So one thing I'm trying to say is like, yes, totally. There has been a reaction um, that in some locales and in some contexts appears disproportionate to what would have been necessary, mm-hmm. right? And so that, that combined with the sense of not feeling like you're getting accurate information, even about those places where it's happening, right? Which is, can you trust your newsfeed about New York City and Italy, mm-hmm. right? So that, those two things combined leads to this fear, right? Which is that the steps being taken are not being taken with relation to reality, Therefore, if reality changes, which is to say the pandemic goes, declines, a few people go to hospitals, then this, because it was never tied to that, will continue to go. <laughs> uh, and so that's, that's, I think, the unease, which is different than in prior extreme historical circumstances, even like 9-11. But if you go back further to like Vietnam and World War II, there was a sense with the American population that, okay, the war is happening, right? We understand we're getting accurate information about the nature of that war. And when the war is won, it'll be over and we'll all know because we're all tracking the same information. (laughs) And so there was a sense of we're in it together and we know what we're in together. Um, And we know that the government is somehow being responsive to reality on our behalf. that feeling is not right now. We don't have that feeling. No, I don't. We have a feeling of not knowing why the government's doing what it's doing and not knowing what the reality actually is on the ground in a lot of circumstances. And we're also getting a lot of disinformation, like actual strategic disinformation, which is confusing as hell. So that sense of like, uh, so when I say it's a reasonable fear to be have this fear of authoritarian, uh, specifically a biomedical authoritarianism, uh, which is terrifying. The question of, is it a reasonable fear to have given the nature of the informational ecosystem you're in? Totally. Is it a reasonable fear because it's likely? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely because of the nature of the informational ecosystem. Now, it's certainly a precarious situation and the feeling of having no agency is a reasonable response as well. But all of many, basically, well, actually, no, all authoritarian regimes have failed. Right. Um, so that's worth noting too. Mm. Right. That if it goes the way that you fear, um, there are steps that can be taken and that have always been taken by people. Mm-hmm. Um, under situations of extreme duress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess I'm saying that there's a way of responding to that fear with courage as opposed to helplessness. Mm-hmm. Um, but we as Americans are not used to having to galvanize those kinds of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so we need to stay alert. We need to stay alert, and I think we need to stay communicative um, and and open, uh, because it's also the case that we may not have locked down hard enough. <laughs> like it's also the case that these measures perhaps ha- have worked, and that 
four months from now, we're going to look at this virus and be like, Jesus, this is a goddamn dangerous thing. <laughs> you know, this isn't some small thing. This is like a scary bioweapon or something. And if had we not taken these measures who like, so we're still in a situation of being in the middle of the beginning mm-hmm. of the unfolding of something of world historical significance. And uh, so that's the case. So most of the emotions that people are experiencing now are, reasonable given how complex the situation is but it's important to try to step back in the kind of that kind of stoical fashion and reorient to the unknown mm-hmm. which is the main event <laughs> is the unknown um, and uh, because there's also potentially some amazing positive shifts that could come out of this as well yeah um, I think this I think you just entered into what as I look at kind of the environment right now, I feel like this is your, this is what you're right now bringing in a way that I don't think a lot of other people are bringing is this, you know, it's like 18 months ago, you released a book called education in a time between worlds. And then poof, we have this like huge pandemic. So I think you've been tracking this kind of unknown, this uncertainty, this, this meta crisis for longer than I knew what a meta crisis even was. So I would love to hear from you just kind of the nature of the meta crisis and what the unknown really is. And I would love to kind of finish by touching on the ideas of the article, a war broke out in heaven, like what it is that is going on inside of us that maps onto our bigger world in the future. Right. Um, yeah, you know, there's a Sri Aurobindo. I don't know if you know Sri Aurobindo. The future um, evolution of man. Yeah, an amazing. Another person who I just found Aurobindo, just read everything and everything about him. And there's this quote in the Life Divine, and it's something like, "In the in the in the final steps of the race towards planetization, uh, there will be a choice between heaven and hell." Mm. And so that's in a sense what this fear is and also this sense of like almost expectancy or excitement, right? And it's also this notion of this war in heaven uh, that as we become interconnected planetarily, as I've already mentioned, one measure to rule the world, right? (laughs) But also one communication infrastructure, signals can get everywhere no civilization like China can collapse without bringing the U.S. down and vice versa. And so there's this, for the first time in human history, the total enclosure of the planet. Um, And so that's this accomplishment of planetization, not to be confused with globalization, which is this other thing, neoliberal thing. Planetization was this inevitable development of human culture towards a planetary enclosure. And what Orbindo saw there and sometimes called uh, Fermi's paradox is another way to hold it. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is that when that happens, when you get a fully planetary civilization, then the rules change. The rules change. Uh, this pandemic is an example of one way the rules change. Uh, climate change is another example of one way the rules change. Things become having to be managed. that can only be managed via planetary action. Right. So there's this race between 
heaven and hell between handling that request for maturation, right? That when we become stewards of the earth, we need to be capable of being stewards of the earth. So there's that chance that we do this right. And then there's this chance that we actually do it wrong. And uh, so there's that sense where, you know, it, it's a moment and everyone's been using this term kairos and it's a good term. It's this moment of opportunity, um, which is also a crisis, which is also inevitable maturational point within the human species, uh, which is to say, once we got here, there was going to be a pandemic, right? Like in the old pandemics, it was like the world wasn't quite as interconnected. It took a very long time to get anywhere, right? But you could be somewhere within 24 hours, basically, if you want to be on an airplane. So all of that, it's like it was inevitable that we faced this kind of challenge with the biological substrate at a planetary level that we needed to like boot a planetary meta-immune system, right? Uh, that was an inevitable challenge of planetization, just like the, the financial situation that may or may not be resolved as a result of this crisis was an inevitable problem for the planetization that we couldn't keep running the planet the way we had run it to that point in terms of whole bunch of aspects of the of the financial apparatus and then also for the way we're treating the natural world so there's a, several things that are occurring now at this kind of like beginning of the beginning of planetized humanity which is uh yeah i see it as a maturational crisis this is the this is the meta crisis this is the end of the old world right this is the meta crisis this is the end of the old world which throws most of the systems in this into crisis simultaneously and interactively <laughs> uh which is the idea so and 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 again so it's, it's similar to when you are in your own individual development at a certain point in your life uh it, it's it's not even that one system got thrown off and then the other ones got thrown off because they're all related. It's that the whole system went into a new challenge, right? Mm -hmm. A new dilemma of maturation. And that made all the systems kind of go off simultaneously. And you can experience that in your life if you've ever had a, a major challenge where there's this cascading interaction of all your routines and all of your thought patterns and your physiology and a whole bunch of things all <laughs> thrown out of whack together. Yeah. And it's super disorienting, extremely confusing and potentially dangerous because you could break down. But those are also the systems and situations where you can pull yourself up into a higher order of maturity and responsiveness. And yeah. so it's that kind of maturational thing. That's the meta crisis. And that's important because this doesn't, it's not that, oh, we fucked up and we've been fucking up for a long time. And now like, that's not actually the story I'm telling. I'm telling a story where we actually evolved from like basically monkeys <laughs> to like have planetary lattice work of perfectly standardized measures linked to a computational stack that now encodes the entire planet in a computer grid, right? Like, okay. That's not a bunch of mistakes. <laughs> Something else is happening here. And it's basically, we need to, uh, again, to embrace that maturational capacity. Like when you're an adolescent and you start to grow and you become strong and you start to grow a frontal cortex and you become smart. And now you could basically, you're as strong as a man, but you're have the mind of an adolescent 
that's like the most dangerous, worst situation. You can get in a car and kill yourself. You start drinking, sexuality, violence, all these things happen when there's that out of balance between the capacities to, to exercise power and the intelligence that's driving the system. And so that is such a beautiful metaphor, the, the maturity of adolescence with the physicality of manhood. Um, that's what, you know, Daniel always says the, as we evolve into having the power of God's, if we don't have the love and wisdom of God's, the whole thing ends, the whole thing self-destructs. Exactly. And so that's what, that's exactly what Orpindo was putting his finger on when he said mm-hmm. there's this choice between heaven and hell when we reach the final steps of planetization because we have the power to destroy the whole planet or to turn the whole planet into something quite beautiful and remarkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so yeah, so that's one way I think of holding the situation that, and this is kind of what's frustrating is that this pandemic was inevitable, like again, because of the trend. And there are other catastrophic events that are also inevitable. <laughs> and this is what Schmachtenberger and me and Hall and we've been saying, like, you look at civilizational collapse patterns and you look at existential risk, it's like, it's not if, it's when mm-hmm. for these things. And so we need to get out of in front of these things that we can predict now that we're in this um, planetary enclosure. Uh, and and be the the fully mature <laughs> uh, adult humans who are thinking on longer timelines, thinking about non-obvious effects and third and second order cascades and all of that stuff, which is not what adolescents do. Adolescents are just there for the party and then whatever yep. happens after that, who knows, right? And that's what capitalism feels like. <laughs> but we need to be much Whoa. more mature as a species um, to, to wield the power, you know? Uh, so, we don't want to give up that. It's so fun to party without having to it. clean up. That's right. You party without cleaning up, kind of you only live once kind of mentality. And, uh, you know, yeah, that's just not going to cut it now that we've got a big car and muscles and we bought a gun and like, you know, we got a girl pregnant. Like, uh-oh. <laughs> like it's you like can't be nervous. Yeah, you, you're, it's mature or die. It is mature or die. And it's also you know, um, yeah, take a certain kind of responsibility. Um, And I also really appreciate that you delineate that obviously we didn't just make a big, a bunch of mistakes to like get us to us FaceTiming a podcast in different times. And that's, that's one of the risks of, of the moment. And it's one of the risks of the end of modernity is that you could read the whole thing as a huge mistake. And Mm -hmm you know, and almost like as soon as we started making the first stone tool, like, oop, downhill from there. <laughs> you know, like, Honestly, you know. I feel like six, six months ago, I was like, I was, I would have sided more with Steven Pinker that like, no, you can't say all of this is bad because I have just interpreted the climate change movement as a politicized anti-human shame mongering <laughs> party. That's like, everything that you do in your life is wrong. You're white privileged male. Who's like fucking up the planet. And (laughs) I think there's some kind of nuance in all of that. And I guess my question then becomes, is this, is this the moment, I guess that the exponential curve goes vertical? Is that why we're seeing all of these systems at the same time? 
be on the edge? I mean, I'm not sure if it's, if it's all strictly exponential growth, mm -hmm. but, we're, but there's definitely a confluence of patterns and trends that okay. have been basically pushed to the point of exhaustion since the seventies in terms of certain dynamics. Um, so yeah, the, there's like a straw that broke the camel's back quality to the virus. Um, and I think it's also the case within individuals like that we're seeing much, much less room to breathe um, uh, among a wider, wider swath of the population. Um, and so that sense of pressure, mostly economic pressure. Um, and then if you're not dealing with economic pressure, then it's some kind of pressure for prestige and inter-elite competition. Um, so that the whole thing's been wound super tight mm -hmm. for a while. Mm -hmm. And, it, so, yeah, I think you're right to see like, there's all these things that were going up <laughs> and all these tensions that were in place. Mm -hmm. And so this question of what happens to a system under that much pressure, um, is the one we're, we're thinking now and are, is what's happening now a release of pressure, right? Or is what's happening now an intensification of pressure? Mm -hmm. I have felt it both. Uh, exactly. Um, I have felt it as both. I think yeah. the, as I read that article that you wrote, I think it was the first time in like the crisis that I actually like cried and had like an emotional expression mm -hmm. of both. One is just the fear of the unknown and the mourning of what was such a comfortable existence, as well as the responsibility that I felt bearing down on me that like the war broke out in heaven and is actually inside of my heart. And it's like my responsibility to take on my own self-responsibility and maturation as a means to survive, as well as my fear that the maturation of humanity as I've experienced it is relatively low for the needs that we are beginning to see so much more clear. And I think that that fear, I experienced that fear as the fear of violence. And I've also felt it as a release. I felt as this COVID thing has turned on. I felt like a switch inside of myself that felt uh, courageous and empowered to talk about some things that had previously been very unpopular and controversial and that maybe if I spoke out now that people wouldn't think I'm fucking crazy. So I've kind of experienced this whole thing as both a intensification of pressure and a release of pressure. Right, right. Totally. totally I'm, man. I'm not sure where the net pressure leaves us, but I do really appreciate your willingness to like have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me that will go out to the to the peeps and um, yeah, man. No, I really appreciate your work. You've got my rapt attention. Uh I'm probably three, two thirds of the way through your book and I really love it. I feel like it stands up for children which is just like how just the, the treatment of children is such a 
indication of our maturation as adults. And I don't think that children in America are actually treated as well as they could be. And so standing up for education and standing up for children is just fucking God's work. And so I applaud that. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, man. Yeah. And as I said, as far as what the last thing you said, I just got to be with those feelings, you know, the grieving and the fear. Uh, this is all there. And, but so is the excitement and anticipation, mm-hmm. the novelty of it and the sense of courage and the sense of being called to something higher and to being called to greater integrity. Um, you know, we're all pushed out of the simple personality and into doing some kind of soul work now. And the soul works always work in relationship to death. Um, and it's never work in the comfort of, <laughs> in the comfort of routine and the comfort of the personality. Um, so in a sense, there's a, there's a possibility here that through exactly the intensity of those emotions that you clarify the self and, yeah, that's what that article is a call to. So it's, yeah, I'm moved actually by the reception of the article. I was not expecting it to be as impactful as it's been. So I, uh, have as many conversations with people as I can about it. And so I'm happy to come on and I wish you luck and, and all and everything, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'll definitely link the article below and, uh, also an Amazon link to the book. Hey, brother. It's been awesome, man. Yeah. So keep me posted. Let me know if I can uh, help in any way. Yeah. I'd love to have another conversation in a month or so. See where we're at. All right. All right, Zach. Take care, man. Later. Okay. You guys, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. There are, I honestly, I just have to express the sheer amount of gratitude that I have for being alive in a time where I can find someone's work be inspired by it, have it foundationally and have it foundationally transform some of my thinking and to be able to reach out to that person and get in touch with them and then be willing to have a 90 minute conversation with a stranger who has a little tiny podcast. And Yeah, what an incredible experience. What an incredible experience. I am so humbled and so grateful for the opportunity to come into such close contact with intellectual mentors who are doing things that inspire me. So this conversation is wind in my sails as far as what my purpose and my mission here is in this podcast to have really important conversations that are pushing the future of humanity into a more peaceful direction and yeah so 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 grateful thank you so much zach for coming on fucking love that conversation we're definitely going to do that again so if you like this podcast if you think these are the kind of conversations we ought to be having right now please subscribe share or leave a review Consider donating. I could really use your help right now with my bank account. That is something that I'm not quite sure what's going to happen with in the next couple of months. I know a lot of us are in that boat, but I'm going to keep keep on keeping on here with the podcast, folks. So thanks for your support. PayPal.me slash Airy in the air. I appreciate everyone who's donated so far. And you guys stay healthy, stay sane, stay safe. We'll see you on the next episode, folks. Peace. Thank you.
Thank you very much.